Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. It's good to be here this morning to join in the worship of our good God, especially if you're visiting with us today. We want to welcome you again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. And today, to pick up in a series that we've simply been calling Questions, a series that we're coming to the end of and in which we've been looking at six of the most prominent questions that come up in spiritual conversations. Questions like, is there a God? Or how can I have faith in God in an age of science? or believe in God in the face of so much suffering? Or questions like we looked at last week, isn't Christianity too narrow? Questions that we're looking at, because these are questions that are gonna come up in conversations with your kids and coworkers. Questions that are gonna come up and you're gonna have to wrestle with, with your family and friends, and that you are, if you haven't already, at some point going to be up at night, rolling around in bed, wrestling with yourself. But none more, our prayer, my prayer for you is that none more, you would wrestle with none more than the question we're going to consider today. What's so special about Jesus? What's so special about Jesus because this is ultimately where these conversations are going to head. If, if you're walking with somebody in conversation and you're walking through the reasons for God, the reasons to believe in a God and, and to believe that a God exists despite what, what, what some scientists on the fringe of their field may say or some, some, some philosophers who are, who are struggling through the problem evil may say, as you continue to walk through and then address a question like the narrowness of Christianity that in fact gives way to the wideness of God's love, ultimately it is going to come down to the question of what's so special about Jesus. And again, my prayer for you and for those you invite into this is that you would struggle with none more, that you would invite others to struggle with none more than this. But before we turn to consider it, let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're turning our attention today precisely to where I believe you would have it. as we fix it on the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. But I ask as we do, I ask as we do, that, that, that you would give us the grace to do so, not as a mere academic exercise, or simply as a, a theoretical endeavor, but rather that we would do so as part of a personal pursuit of you. And in doing so, I pray that we would come to the astounding realization that long before our pursuit of you began, you were already pursuing us. And none more so than in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. You may have heard the story of the mime who was trying to make a little extra cash, wandered into a zoo to catch the, catch the crowds, but was quickly taken aside by the manager of the zoo and asked if he would like another job, a job on the, the zoo's payroll, something that would pay much better than his, than his, his uh, panhandling on the side. He was asked if he would fill in because just recently that zoo had lost its prized gorilla. The gorilla had gotten old, had, 
had eventually bit the dust and they didn't want to break the news to the crowds because this is in, in some part what those crowds were coming for. And so the manager of this zoo asked this mime if he would fill in. And it was a pretty good salary for a guy who had no consistent work before that. It was a pretty good deal. All he had to do was put on the, the gorilla suit and walk around in the gorilla cage and, and, and all would be well. He would be making out better than he had before. So he did it. He put on the gorilla suit and he started walking around at first just kind of lame-like and, and making his way around this gorilla enclosure. Eventually, though, he realized that to keep the job, he was going to have to draw the crowds, just like the, the real gorilla had. So he upped the ante a bit and he started swinging around and grabbing onto things and, 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 and spinning and, and pounding his chest and, and making a scene and started to draw the crowds. This was job security. He was doing it. He was, they weren't going to look for a real gorilla to replace him anytime soon. He was drawing the crowds, and he was loving every minute of it. Actually, as one who had a previous career as a mime, he was getting more attention now than he ever had before. This was a great deal. But it came to the point where one day he outdid himself. And swinging on a rope, making all sorts of noises, eventually he was swinging with such enthusiasm that the rope broke. And unfortunately for this mime-turned-gorilla, he was at that moment swinging in the direction of the lion over the gate into the lion pit where he quickly realized that the lion now, crowd even bigger, the lion now was running after him. And the gorilla tried to pound his chest and make a, a, a tantrum to get the, the lion to, to, to leave him alone, but, but to no avail, started to run, eventually started turning to the crowd to yell, to say, hey, it's me, I am not a gorilla, please help. At which point, too late to get the help he called for, he was taken down by the lion and quickly told to shut up because he was putting both of their careers <laughs> at risk. So it was in this zoo. An easy exchange for a, a man in a gorilla suit, a man in a lion suit. Nobody could tell the difference for the real thing. Which raises the question for us, though, what about Jesus? <laughs> Could you do similar with Jesus? Could you simply exchange the real thing for a fake and never know any better? There was a man by the name of Paul Tillich, a, a theologian of a more liberal persuasion uh, of the, the last century, uh, an existentialist philosopher who, who at one point in his career uh, scheduled a number of talks over in Asia and gathered around him during, during that time, gathered around him several of the high-ranking Buddhist uh, theologians. The, the, the Buddhists of, of uh, the temples in Asia and, and invited them to come speak to him where he was digging into their, uh, their, their religion and trying to make sense of whether the differences between the religion he was brought up in but was slowly walking away from and the religion that they adhered to, whether the differences were all that big a deal. To which he came to an understanding with those Buddhist monks that, that really the, the thing about their religion that, that seemed to be a little different than his own is, that, is the fact that you could remove Buddha 
from the story. Gautama Buddha, the, the, the man who, who walked away from Hinduism and founded that religion. You could, in fact, remove him from the story and it would make no difference to what they believed. Because their belief system did not hinge on the person who instigated it, who instituted it. Similar things could be said for many of the other religions of our world, for Hinduism, for Islam, for the, the animalistic religions of Africa and what still remains in Asia. But can it be so for Christianity? Is it similar for Christianity? Rather than follow the, the Buddhists and not attaching any importance to the one who founded their religion, if you're really going to follow Christianity and take it from its roots back in the, the early church, you would have to say no. You cannot in the same way remove Christ and be left with a Christianity that is just as much intact. Because the religion, the faith of Christianity does not stand apart from the person and work who founded it. Similarly, you could say you cannot remove Christianity from Christ. The two are so integrally connected that they must be kept together. And I want to consider that, though, today, through this, the lens of this question, what is so special about Jesus? Why is Jesus so different from the other religious leaders of the past, the religious leaders of our world? What makes him so different, so integrally connected to the religion he founded. And this is a question that is going to come up, ought to come up, ought to be pushed to come up in your conversations with your kids and coworkers, with your family and friends. One that you should, if you have not already, you should wrestle with tonight. And I wanna consider it today What's so special about Jesus? And I want to do that, though, not by just listing off what we, what we could, a number of the things that makes, make Jesus so different from the other religious leaders of the world, the religious leaders of the past, but rather by looking uh, with one who was Jesus' closest follower and asking what they saw in Jesus that we ought to as well. And that follower is a man named John. And I want to take this sort of fly-by tour at 30,000 feet of John's gospel. Again, this, this one who was Jesus' closest follower, this gospel that presents itself as the testimony of Jesus' closest follower. And ask again, what's so special about Jesus? Which I think we're going to see the answer to lies in two things. First, in what Jesus did, what Jesus does. And second, in how he does it. First, in what Jesus does, and second, in how Jesus does it. And really, that is the outline of John's gospel, where the first 11 chapters and a little bit are devoted to this question of what Jesus does, and the second half of John's Gospel, chapters 12 through 21, are devoted to the question of how Jesus does it. First, though, with what he does. That, that Jesus' uniqueness is wrapped up in what he came into this world to do. 
which John summarizes even in the very opening verses of the gospel, and you can, you can turn there if you'd like to John chapter 1, which John summarizes even in these opening verses where after describing where Jesus came from, where he comes from, being with the Father at creation, John says in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light, as opposed to John, the one who only reflects the light, points to light, the true light was coming into the world and that while rejected by some, that's in the verses that follow, while rejected by some, even rejected by those who should have welcomed him most, that verse 12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus came to give the right, the authority to become children of God who were born or reborn, as John's going to make the case, not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. That Jesus come, Jesus came, that we might be children of God. It's what he does. Which is really something when you come to think of it even if it doesn't seem like all that big a deal to us, even if it's worn off a bit on those who have been in the faith a while. This is really quite something. Because this isn't an idea Jesus just adopted from somewhere else that he then just made into his own. He didn't just smuggle this in from the outside or, 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 or reintroduce it from some background that he had in the Jewish faith. This is something entirely new. This notion of being a, a child of God, of being born of God, not just in the, in the sense of being part of God's people, Right? Israel in the Old Testament is called a, a son of God, but only as a people. But being here personally, the object of God's affection, this was a notion unique to Jesus. So much so that even in the most watered-down versions of our faith, of the Christian faith, you'll still hear people describe Christianity as being about, first, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. Even in the most watered-down versions of our faith is how impactful this idea was. And even recent scholarship has confirmed how unique this is to Christianity as all of its study of the writings of especially ancient Judaism out of which Christianity emerged and in which Jesus grew up hasn't yielded, all of the writings of ancient Judaism hasn't yielded a single instance of anyone addressing God directly as Father. No one would have dared. Until a thousand years after Jesus is when you get the first Jewish instance of this happening. Most likely because Christianity finally rubbed off in the other direction. No one would have dared. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to fine though for Jesus it's not just that it's one thing he introduced on the side you'd be hard pressed to find a, a single prayer of his that doesn't start by addressing God as father and yet more so John says it was his purpose in coming not just that, that he would show us what that looks like, but that he would invite us, invite his followers to do the same. And that he came for the very purpose of making that possible. That you and I might cry out, Abba, Father. Not just as those throwing up Hail Mary prayers, but as children of God. 
What's so special about Jesus is that he invites us. He, he paves the way and then invites us to have God himself as our father. Not like one of the neighbor kids, right? Coming to your door, hovering around your door, always wanting to get in, but has no right to. But like your kid, like your kid who has a right to your home, so too you have a right and access to God himself. Jesus makes it possible. In the first half of John's gospel, from, from this prologue forward, this, this statement about having the right, having the authority to become children of God that, that, that lies at the heart of, of the prologue, the rest of this first half of John's gospel is really just spelling out what that looks like, what Jesus does to make it possible. So, for instance, that at the end of chapter 1, if you read on, for John and Andrew and Simon Peter after them, for Philip and Nathaniel, and anyone who will likewise come and see, come and see, come and see, that, that Jesus, verse 51 is where this comes to a head, is the one who, who bridges the gap between us down here and God up there. He, he takes this Old Testament story of a man named Jacob who, who made his way to the edge of the promised land and was, was, leaving, was leaving, hoping that the promise still stood, that he would one day come back, lies his head down on a rock that night and has a dream that there on the very edge of the promised land is where, is where God touches down, where the ladder of God touches down and heaven and earth are connected in the promised land. Jesus says, you're gonna see better things than you've ever seen before because it's on the Son of Man that the angels will ascend and descend. It's on the Son of Man that us down here and God up there will be connected. And it's He who bridges the gap. It's what He does. It's what He does to make being part of the family of God possible like none be for Him like no religion after him, like no man-made religion ever. He bridges what cannot be bridged without him. And in chapter two, that he's the one who, who, who gets the party started. That's what this is about. This is what this wedding at Cana is all about and, and Jesus turning water into wine. But Jesus is the one who gets the party started. That sound uncomfortable to some of you? That's what it is. He gets the party started. You don't believe me? Why else do you think that this is uh, something seems to, to have been hardwired into all of us? You might not even be a partier, but this is something hardwired into all of us, whether it's a pinata at a birthday party or a pint at the bar. No matter where you go after it, whether for good or for ill, this is something that is hardwired into us. That we are by nature partiers. We look for things to, to celebrate, even the, the gloomiest of us. It's why you can't get your kids to stop singing and dancing those silly troll songs. <laughs> right? Got this feeling inside my bones. Right? It's why that stuff gets stuck in your head. It's why so many wake up on Sunday mornings hammered of, because of what they went looking for Saturday night. Maybe because we were made for a bigger party? Because we were made for a better party. Not to give in to the thought that all this world is an illusion and all you have to do is meditate yourself out of the pain, out of the pleasure. But in fact, that the, the pain is left in this world to drive you towards a greater pleasure. That we were made to party and Jesus is the one who gets it going. 
And no matter how much we twist it in the wrong way, that nonetheless, it, the fact remains that we have an insatiable desire for it. Even those among us who don't do it publicly. Why? Because this is what we were made for and this is what Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus, for her, his part, came to get the party started, which is what he does as he kicks off the celebration in this wedding in John chapter 2. But notice, it's not about the wedding in John chapter 2. It's about a better wedding yet to come and a better wine. No matter how good the wine was at that wedding in Cana, it's about a better wine around which that party will be celebrated. A wine that eventually will be drawn from his own blood. Jesus is the one who gets the party started. It's why he came. It's what he does. So that we can party as part of the family of God. Chapter 3, from his encounter with Nicodemus, that, that Jesus provides the way for us, verse 3, to be born again. This is where that really comes to a head, this idea of being born again. Because who hasn't woken up and by the time their feet hit the floor hasn't already wished that they could start over? And you know, I know you know, moms, because we've got a mom in our house that you think sometimes that jumping under the covers again is going to reset the day. But it doesn't, right? It doesn't. And let alone the whole life that needs to be reset before it. And Jesus came to do it. Like Nicodemus recognized, you need to Climb back into the womb if that's going to work. Even then it's bound to fail. And yet in Jesus, starting over for good is made possible. It's made possible. Where even your, your worst mistakes, your worst mess-ups can't undo what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus does. This is what makes him different. Case in point, following off of chapter 3, chapter 4, and the woman at the well where all that was wrong in her story becomes a testament to all Jesus' ability to make it all right again. Don't you wish you were her? It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman. We all want to be the woman at the well. You all ought to want to be the woman at the well. We all have a story. And parts of it are amazing, but parts of it are just plain grisly. And yet, Jesus is the one who's able to take all of that, the only one able to take all of that and work it now for a testament of his ability to make it all right again. And it just continues from there as you get into the, what's called the festal cycle of John from chapters 5 through to 10. That, that, that Jesus comes to fulfill all that we celebrate, all that we long for, all that we look back at and, 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 and beg God to do again. That chapter 5, Jesus provides Sabbath rest. That's why he heals this man on the Sabbath. Because he's making a statement saying that, that he does what the Father does. That, that verse 19, chapter 5, he is doing what he sees the Father doing. And he can do none other. That he is the instrument of God to make this world right again. To provide the Sabbath rest that it never was able to have without him. No matter how many Sabbaths were celebrated apart from him. That he's the one who, who, who heals and will heal and, and do it all in the end. At chapter 6, he, he secures Passover provisions. That's what chapter 6 is all about. With the, with the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness. With what? 
five loaves and two little fishies. He feeds the 5,000 in the wilderness outside the promised land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But then what? Once he enters back into the promised land the, the next day after crossing through the waters just as God had done and led his people to do. Now he's not providing five loaves and two little fishies, no matter how many 5,000s are around. Now it's for a whole world that he says, I give you the bread of life, which is my very body. I give you what can sustain for eternity, which is my very body. Everything that you look back on, ask God to beg God to do again. Everything that you long for God to do again. Jesus says, I do it. It's all about me. That chapter 7, 8, and 9, that he's the, the light and life looking forward. He's the light and life that was looked forward to in the Feast of Booths. Chapter 10, that he's the shepherd of his sheep looked forward to in the Feast of Dedication. A shepherd who there lays down his life in order to provide the sheep with life. Ultimately, like in chapter 11, where he raises a man named Lazarus from the grave. This is what Jesus does. He, he comes to to. to, to, to pick up the fabric of history and to reweave it around himself to make possible a, a relationship with the God who made us, not to escape history, not to try and redo it ourselves, to do what we can't do on our own, that all the religions of the world agree that you can never do on your own, never secure on your own, never do with any absolute assurance on your own. Jesus came to do what we can't. Not to escape it, not because we somehow have to deny the reality of it, but to make possible what was supposed to be from the very beginning. That's what he does. Taking all the longings of the human heart that aren't dismissed as mere illusions or, or separated from us by an endless cycle of karma or divorced from the, the one they were ultimately meant to be desires, longings for, like in, in Islam, where heaven has very little to do with the one who created it. But rather to take all of the longings of the human heart and to reorient them, wrap them back around the one we were made for. This is what Jesus does in a way that no other religious leader ever dared say they do. It was all work till you get better, work till you get up there, work till you undo all that went wrong. But in, always in an endless cycle of never being able to accomplish it. This is what Jesus does. Second, though, what's so special about how Jesus does it? Well, here, the second half of the Gospel of John, he does it, he does it within the very history that needs to be bent right. He does it within the very fabric of the history that needs to be set back where it was meant to be, which is quite special because no one else, no other religion, religious leader ever tried to undo the mess. They just tried to compensate for it. But here is one who claims to be able to take what's wrong and use it for what's right and does so most squarely in his own death and resurrection. His own death and resurrection, which comes into view now in chapter 12 like it was only hinted at before. 
there was a sense in which we knew already that, that one had to be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness, that, that one had to be broken like the bread in the wilderness, that, that Jesus would ultimately have to sacrifice something. But here, this is a new level at which chapter 12 brings to the forefront Jesus' death and resurrection, the hope of his resurrection. And it starts with this anointing at the the Sabbath before Jesus' death on the cross. The Sabbath before Jesus shows up to a town called Bethany where he had raised that man named Lazarus. He shows up at that town named Bethany, is invited in by that family whom you couldn't blame for being so connected to him at this point. They'd raised his brother from death to life again. It's welcomed in, and then they celebrate that Sabbath feast that was only ever, for the entire history of the Jewish people, only ever celebrated in honor of God. Now they celebrate it in honor of Jesus. But really, the climax of that night wasn't the meal. It was when one of the sisters broke a, a rather expensive bottle of perfume that we never have demonstrated at home for our kids, broke a rather expensive bottle of perfume at Jesus' feet and proceeded to anoint him for what he clarified was his burial. That Jesus would die. That's how he'd do it. How he would accomplish all he promised to. And from that point, it only grows. It only grows in magnitude, in magnification, that Jesus was going to have to go to the cross. And then there was a hope, a promise on his part, a hope for the disciples that he would rise again. It's pretty faint. It's not pronounced much which explains a little bit why they're taken off of guard on the other side of it. Though Jesus at other points says, you should have known based on what God does, it's kind of faint. But that too eventually grows to the point where it comes true. What I want to do though for here is I want to just switch gears for a moment and talk about this idea that Jesus died and rose again. And rather than walking through John's story, I want to walk you into just a few points that we, in our 2,000 years later, we, we tend to miss the details which any first century um, member of the audience to whom this, this, this gospel came um, to, any of them, they would have heard these things. We often don't. And I want to just point out five reasons that you, you really should be wrestling with at night. Five facts of, the, of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus that you have to make sense of that almost all New Testament scholars, all credible New Testament scholars, whether they're in an evangelical institution that, that really puts stock in these things or in, in the liberal institutions that, that more pepper our own nation and pepper the, 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 the continent over in Europe, um, that all credible New Testament scholars agree on the facts that you too have to make sense of. Let me just name them for you because these are things that you should walk others into. We don't hear them. We don't realize that these are part of the story. We blow over them, but these are incredibly, centrally important. First, the first fact is that Jesus was condemned. Jesus was condemned to death by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and crucified dead by the Roman guard under his command. This is not up for debate. All historians will agree with this, except some on the very fringes that even even the most liberal scholars would say, you're out of your mind to disagree with this. That Jesus was, was condemned to death by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and crucified dead by the Roman guard under his command. You have to come to grips with that. And it's not likely that a Roman governor who condemned somebody to death publicly wouldn't have gotten the job done. 
That's not really how Roman crucifixions went. And you have to grapple with it. Jesus was condemned and crucified by the Roman guard and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Second fact, that after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb specifically by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea. You blow over it at the end of John chapter 19 after Pontius Pilate has done his deed and handed Jesus over. You blow over that that little detail that Jesus was buried by a member of the Sanhedrin, a known member, that you couldn't have made this stuff up. He was one of the enemy, the one that, 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 that put Jesus to death. Yet one of them being a disciple secretly, and this is attested in multiple places, multiple independent places, that a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin was the one who took his body off the cross and put it in a publicly known tomb. Wasn't a mistake. Didn't get lost in the shuffle. We do things like that, not this. You have to come to grips with that. That it is a very unlikely invention of Christians afterwards to have said that one of the enemy actually joined their forces to put Jesus to rest. What are you going to do? Jesus was condemned and crucified by the Romans. He was buried by this member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea. That third, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, as is recorded in John chapter 20, Jesus' tomb was found empty by, specifically, a group of women, which in first century Palestine would have been laughable to say that this is your witness for what you're claiming to be the the, the greatest miracle in the history of humanity. And yet they didn't skirt the issue, the ones who recorded the event. They didn't try to to undo it. They they mentioned men afterwards to, 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 to affirm the testimony of the women, but they write in, apparently, because that's the way it happened, that on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus tomb was found empty by a bunch of women whose testimony wouldn't have stood up in court, whose testimony wouldn't have held weight for anybody. No one disagrees with it. What are you going to do? corroborated by all sorts of things like the simplicity of Mark's version of it. It's not, it's not flowery. It's not legendary. It's not developed beyond belief. It's just simply told. It's corroborated by the earliest Jewish response to the resurrection. They didn't doubt that the tomb was empty. They tried to blame it on the disciples stealing the body, which isn't a very strong way to go with their own argumentation. What are you going to do? Fourth, Not only was Jesus condemned and crucified by the Romans, not only do you have to come to grips with the fact that he was buried in a tomb by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, not only do you have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus was found, Jesus' tomb was found empty the the following Sunday by a, a group of women, but fourth, you have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus apparently appeared in multiple situations to multiple people and multiple groups of people over 
something like a 40-day period. Some of those accounts are even, even recorded in this gospel, that after Mary finds the tomb and calls John the beloved and Peter to come look at it as well, that eventually Jesus appears to her. Eventually after that, Jesus appears to hit the 12 in the upper room, minus Thomas, and eventually appears to Thomas too. And then for a third time, reveals himself all the way up in Galilee. You have to come to grips with this. That this is early testimony, both from Mark's passion narrative and also from, from the testimony of Paul. That this is not made up some 50 to 100 years after the fact. That, that Paul is writing within five years of the event itself. And how do you explain it? How do you make sense of it? There's even a man um, who was a professor of Hebrew studies at Hebrew University in Israel, a Jew, a man by the name of Lapid, who said after his own research into this that you cannot doubt. He believed as a Jew that God had indeed raised Jesus from the dead. That had Jesus appeared to more than the 530 persons to whom these early accounts attest him to have appeared to, that all of Judaism would have had to claim him as the Messiah. And that as a Jew, though he doesn't believe in Jesus' Messiahship for himself yet, he says at the end of time, because of what happened in the resurrection and those historical documents, I expect Jesus is going to show up again and then he'll be my Messiah too. What do you do? What are you going to do? And then lastly, what are you going to do not just with the fact that Jesus was crucified, condemned by the Romans, that he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, that he was, he, his tomb was found empty by none other than a group of women, that he appeared over some 40 days to, to some 500 people, but what are you going to do to explain the existence of Christianity itself? This is the most bizarre part of the story. This is almost more unbelievable than the resurrection itself. That those who had dealt with these facts themselves, who had watched the leader of their faith be crucified on a Roman cross, buried in a tomb, found empty that they didn't have an explanation for, that these would become the very ones who spread that faith to the end of the world under the guise that they really did believe that the one they saw crucified had risen again. What are you going to do with Christianity? What are you going to do? Because the facts are not deniable. They're not denied by those who have gotten deepest into the grit of the issue. So that everybody has to, in some way, ought to, in some way, be pushed to make sense of them. And of the options on the table, at least if you're open to the possibility, there doesn't seem to be a better explanation than Jesus actually did rise from the dead. But wonderfully, that his resurrection wasn't just about him. That all he did, all he does, and how he did it in his death and resurrection was about all those who had put their faith in him. That those who struggle with the facts and face the facts for what they are, have the opportunity through those same facts and what they point to, to find life themselves. No other 
religious leader in the history of humanity ever promised as much or took upon his or her own shoulders to accomplish it on those who would follow him on their behalf. It's what's so special about Jesus. And I'd encourage you as you leave here today and continue to wrestle, which I hope, again, this is the question you wrestle with most of any, that you wrestle and wrestle until you can wrestle no more. I hope that you leave here today first. If this is the picture of our world, if this is the the faith that explains the ins and outs of, of the world we live in, I hope you leave not first running after anything else. Not running after uh, some other satisfaction. Not running after the the boyfriend or the girlfriend as if that's what's going to make your life what it is. Not running after the the, the power or the pleasure as if that's where your life is going to find satisfaction. Not running after the, 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 the quiet even of just trying to escape all of the mess. That you can be alone in some corner of the world where nobody's going to bug you, that not even that would be your heart's desire, but that you would turn all of the longings of your heart, all of the cravings, all of the desires to the one person who can satisfy them, for whom those things were made, and let him get the party going. Second, as you don't run after everything else, and you do run after Jesus, I pray that you would continue to present him to those in our world who are running after everything else. Who are putting their faith, their hope, their their everything in, in, in that which is other than Jesus and finding nothing for it. My prayer is that you'd do it for yourself and that you would never offer anything else to those around you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I um, I ask even as we near the end of this series and we, we turn next week to struggle with, yes, that's what the Bible says, but how can we even trust it? As we put the final piece of this puzzle together, I pray that even now you would be turning our affections and stoking them for your son, Jesus. Pray for those of us who are struggling even today, even, even before we woke up this morning or since we have, struggling to, to, to run after other things, other pleasures or the escape of other pains. I pray that you would turn us swiftly towards him. In whose name we pray, amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.